Welcome, Redemption Arcadia. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Thank you so much for wearing your masks while you're on our campus. We really appreciate that. Um, whether you're joining us in the live stream or um, here in person, go ahead and stand and let's sing together this morning. Daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. 
The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will, give no, longer, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. This great mercy and great joy was heralded by John the Baptist and came in in the person of Jesus Christ. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my might. God has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. to follow 
Jesus, we thank you that we get to remember your birth, um, that you came and that you called the wise men to follow the star um, to the place um, that your son was. And so, God, we just thank you that we get to um, read your word and read the account um, of the coming of the Savior. And so we just ask that Tyler's words would move in our hearts, that you would work in our hearts through what he has to say, and that you would be glorified in everything that we do today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stay standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. My name's Tyler. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are one church in 10 local congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We are three weeks into our Advent series as we prepare ourselves for the birth of Christ and wait for his return. Our Advent series this year is titled Come and See, which is an invitation uh, for all to come and see this infant born. We have a kid's Christmas play coming up next week, so I want everybody to know this because it's going to be wonderful and hilarious and a little bit of a mess. Not because Heather hasn't put the work in, but because it's just the way these things go. So the way that's going to work is next week, during both services, we'll do one song with the band, then we're going to do a little adorable play. The kids will be involved in that. And then the kids will lead a song with the band as our second song of worship. That's next week during both services. So any parents in here, if you want your child to be involved, uh, hopefully you already know about this. I think she's been sending out uh, some information to you. But you can reach out to her in the back or at the Connect desk or she'll be somewhere in the lobby. Or you can always email her at heathermiller@redemptionaz.com. So look forward to that. This is going to be, I think, a first for us, but I'm, I'm excited. It'll be great. Well, today we are looking at the rest of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel. So you can turn there now, Luke 1. We'll be covering verses 57 through 80. We're looking at God's mega linen, or his great mercy, in this first of two birth stories. And we'll be looking at a prophetic song from an old priest in the Jewish temple, Zechariah. All right, so just to catch us up, what else has happened so far? Well, back earlier in chapter 1, we saw two visits from the angel Gabriel to two different people. Two people who love God deeply, 
followed his commands, an old couple and a young woman, a priest and a bride-to-be. The old couple and the young woman are both promised to have a child. One believes the angel's words, and one sadly doubts. And last week, we heard from Pastor Tyler Thompson, uh, Mary's beautiful, magnificent song before the Lord, a song of humble praise to God. And after Mary visited with Zechariah and Elizabeth, she left, and Zechariah is left unable to speak or apparently hear, as we'll see in our text today. And it's because of his disbelief in the, in the uh, promise of God's messenger. So our story picks up and zooms in on this one moment when after months in hiding, Elizabeth, the time had come for her in her advanced age to give birth to a son, who we know as John the Baptist. Now, although he's the main character of our story here, he actually is doing his job already. Later on in, in the book of Luke, John says these great words, he must what? Increase and I must decrease. John's doing that already, even though he's the main character in this story. What shines through this story is God's great mercy beginning to dawn in the coming birth of Jesus. So let me pray, and we'll get into our text. God, we pray that this morning you would increase and we would decrease. God, that you would be glorified and exalted and highly lifted up, and we would be humbled, God, reminded of our uh, estate before you. So we pray, God, that you'd speak to us through your word, that, that the mercy that you showed Elizabeth and the mercy that you showed us would be what shines through, God. Please work in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Is everybody there? Luke 1. We'll read 57 and 58. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown, what? Great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. So the people are rejoicing with Elizabeth that her son was born. People are freaking out. Cigars are being passed around. Phone calls are being made. Families are jumping in on Zoom calls altogether. And in a few verses, the word is going to continue to spread, not just in celebration, but actually in trembling and fear. Why? Because fear and awe are always the result when God is clearly at work. And clearly, he's at work here. Interestingly, God's described as having shown mega linen or great mercy to her. If you're like me, you hadn't heard any of these mega words at all that we're talking about up here. But I have heard of mercy before. It's one of those Christian-y kind of sounding words, isn't it? And growing up, I always heard it used in contrast to grace. So grace is getting something you don't deserve. Anybody heard these before? Like a gift. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Like a, a punishment, but a just punishment. And I think those definitions are helpful, but as we'll see today, that's not the full picture of God's mercy, but it turns out there is a clear connection between mercy and grace. It's used often in scripture, and so we're going to look at Exodus 34. If you'd like, you can flip all the way back there with me. This is one of those really important verses that's quoted often in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. We read in our uh, Sunday prayer time this morning. It's used often, and in the New Testament as well. So just to set the scene here, 
God is on Mount Sinai with Moses. And he passes before Moses. And as he does, it's really important, he speaks his character to Moses. And this is the first time God's revealing his character in this way. This is what it says, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the first word, first word God uses to describe himself is merciful. And grace is a character trait we'll cover another time. But another English word that works for mercy is compassion. But I, I couldn't find a, a mega compassion word. Mega passion, I tried, it didn't work. But mercy is the word that's used most often anyway in this text. So mercy, compassion, what is it? If you did a word study on that Exodus passage, you'd find it's used, that word is used to describe a deep emotional stirring. It's really closely related to the word used for a womb, a woman's womb. So think about that. If God's showing compassion, it's from this deep, guttural place, and it's used in moving towards someone else. That's the picture here. You see, we have a modern movement these days of um, empathy, and there's been a lot of um, articles and videos done about empathy because it's better than what, what we do sometimes in relationships when someone's suffering. We give them sympathy, and we know now that that's not the most helpful thing. Right? So sympathy says, I'm here, you're there, you're going through a hard time, and I go, oof, man, that, uh, that looks tough. Yeah, sympathy. You can see how un unhelpful that is for someone that's suffering, right? So empathy would get into the mess with them and look around and go, oh, okay, I see now. Yeah, th this is hard. This makes sense. So that's empathy. You can see how that's more helpful. But God's mercy, his compassion goes one step farther. It says, I feel for you like a parent feels for a hurting child. And like a parent, like any good parent, I'm going to do anything I can to help relieve that pain. Compassion is love applied and from that deep connected place. Trey Fraley, one of our pastors, we were talking about this, this theme in scripture, and he said this, compassion is love in action. I thought that was pretty good. Not bad. And in God's perfection, here's what's cool. He does it not based on the worthiness of the one receiving compassion. They don't have to be anything for God to show his character. It's who he is. He is compassionate. He will show mercy. Now, it's clear that God was deeply moved with compassion for Elizabeth. Think of the shame of her in her advanced years being barren. Culturally, that was a big shame point. So he was moved with compassion for her and gave her a child. Now his mercy was also shown in not only did the child survive the birth, but Elizabeth survived. Think about the survivability for a, a pregnant woman to deliver a child back then would have been a lot worse than it was now in what we consider um, advanced medical help and things like that wasn't available back then. So the fact that the child survived and was happy and healthy and whole, and that Elizabeth, don't forget, she's advanced in years. The fact that both of them survived was a great, 
mercy. That's why it says that God had shown great mercy to her for all those reasons. And that's why the people were celebrating with her. So then, on the eighth day, they take this child, this special gift, this great mercy, and they go to name him, which was part of the culture back then. And I don't know if this is part of the culture or not. I didn't do too deep a dive. It just struck me as funny. The family gets involved in what the name should be, and the neighbors. So all you new parents out there, picture this. You go to name your child, and your neighbor next door goes, I don't know, what do we think of that? No, I, I think actually his name should be this. You'd be going, what? why are you involved? Why are you involved in this? It just feels like they get involved, and they just made a big mess. So they want to name him after his dad. They want to say, hey, let's name him Zechariah. And Elizabeth she wisely remembers that the angel had already given him a name. And she says, no, his name's going to be John. And they don't believe her. The neighbors go, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Let's ask Zechariah. Surely he'll talk some sense. So look at verses 62 through 66. And they, that's the neighbors and the family, made signs to the father. This is what it means by clearly he couldn't speak or hear. Otherwise, they would just would have spoken. So... They made signs to him, inquiring what he wanted the child to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. So the writing tablet uh, was a piece of wood with wax on it that you would etch symbols into and then melt that and, and kind of erase it in that way. Uh, is it vital to understand that, to know the story? No. But is it interesting? Yeah, I think so. So he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately... His mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, the words getting out. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So like a good husband, Zechariah backs his wife. Good move. But more importantly, he believes and obeys the word from the angel Gabriel in that moment. And in writing those four words, I just picture him writing the last letter and the period, and then immediately his time of silence was broken. I think it's significant, too, that his first words were of blessing and praise to God. One commentator called this period of Zechariah's life, Zechariah's forced time of reflection. Because remember, he doubted God's promise and in God's justice was forced to reflect on that for nine months. This was his time of forced reflection. In Advent, each year, we take time to reflect. How are we doing on that, church? Like me, are you shocked that we're in week three of Advent already? How did it get to week three? Is part of the reason Advent's flying by like that because we're not taking time to reflect? Does God need to force us? I can't help but wonder what, what God could do with our hearts if we took this time to reflect more actively. And it doesn't even have to look like this. What if we viewed our illness? Many of us are going through really difficult times. What if we viewed that as a forced time of reflection? Or say it another way. What if we viewed our suffering as a great mercy of God? I think Zechariah would have agreed that that time of forced reflection was a great mercy. I can say that that thought never once occurred to me as 
a 17-year-old sitting in the hospital, recovering from my third spinal surgery. And if you want to know more about that, I'd be happy to, we'll talk about that. But if you spend any extended time in the hospital, you know there's only so much hospital TV you can watch. There's only so many apps on the phone you can do or magazines. Or, but at some point, you end up just sitting there. There's nothing else really to do. And my mental state back then, I was 17, was, was get healed, get back to it as quick as possible. Just endure, head down, let's go. I want to be better as, as fast as I can. But what if I would have viewed it as a time of reflection? And naturally, the next question is, would I, if and when, I have to do that again? The chances are suffering's coming our way, illness maybe at some point. Would I do it again? Would I view it as a great mercy of God? One commentator said this on his commentary on Luke. He said, our suffering will either make us bitter or make us better. Zechariah's bettering came through his forced time of reflection. And I'd like to think that next time I'd allow God's bettering work. And ultimately, yes, it worked out for the better. But what, what could God have done with my heart in that? Well, clearly Zechariah's time worked because he obeyed and he wrote, his name is John, and immediately begins his prophetic song of praise over this precious child as well, mentioning God's mercy two more times even in this song. Another commentator says, a chastened and transformed Zechariah is now emulating Mary's faith. Think about that. This old priest in the temple, it turns out, had much to learn from this young woman, Mary. And having learned how to emulate her faith, he begins emulating her song, his own prophetic song. So let's read the first bit of that, 67 through 69 of Luke 1. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit too. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So he blesses God, thinking of this infant Jesus when he mentions God's visited us. And he gives this image of a horn of salvation, which to us, it should strike us as kind of a weird phrase, right? Picturing a disembodied horn just floating around. I don't get how that's a... A good thing. But that would have been a known biblical phrase at the time. Horn of salvation. So quickly put, it's an image of power. It's an image of might promised by God to come through David's family line. That's why he's mentioned there. And part of the covenant he made with Abraham. Think of the horn as attached to a rhino. Now all of a sudden it makes a little more sense, right? Now that's a powerful image because of what it's connected to. So what he's saying here is Jesus is the horn on the rhino of God's promises for salvation. How's that for an image? So Zechariah continues in verse 70 through 75. Let's read that. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him 
all our days. What Christian doesn't long for that kind of deliverance? To be free to fully serve him without fear, without doubt, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I think that just sounds pretty amazing. The days of suffering and sin are over. Our future struggles are over. 2020 is over. And church, we have no guarantees, by the way, that 2021 will be any better. But our hope is not in that. Our hope's not in a better 2021. It's here. It's here in God's word and his promises. Backed by his character of compassion towards his people. Remember, these people are a people familiar with suffering and oppression. They're surrounded by those, like I said, who hate them. And they're pleading on God's mercy to keep his promises. God, you promised you'd get us out of here. Their hopes hang on that. And so the song takes a turn here from speaking of God's promises to his people to speaking of Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. Verses 76 and 77. And you, child, I just picture Zechariah holding this newborn infant, looking into his eyes and saying this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Get these words here, tender mercy. Our God, he's using really intimate language here, to speak to a holy God and to speak on behalf of his infant son. Look at the sunrise image there too. John the Baptist's life will be marked by these words in here. But when you think about it, this work of him preparing the way for the Lord, that what it says in there, that that's just a blip of his life. Do you ever think about that? We know his life was cut short. He was executed in a prison. Uh, but this, this moment of preparing the way for the Lord was really just a blip in his life. And it came through a long season of wilderness preparation. Look ahead to verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So all this buzz and gossip the word's getting out. What's this child going to be? And where does he go? To the wilderness. And my kids know him as the weird guy who eats grasshoppers and wears camel hair clothes. Like this is what he's known for. Like a somehow weirder version of Bear Grylls. But I think the wilderness season is where John the Baptist became John the Baptist. I think that's where he became the answer to God's prophecy by his spirit, of course. Remember, the prophet's job is to speak on behalf of God. And the wilderness is where the prophets are prepared for the hardship of public ministry. Moses did it. John did it. And Jesus did it. And I'm more and more convinced that we wouldn't have John the Baptist without this wilderness season. Zechariah closes with this beautiful, climactic, poetic image at the end of his song here. Let's look at these last two verses of his song, 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. These images of tender mercy, the mercy of our God. And this sunrise image, I I picture it um, just starting to break the horizon, just starting to cut through the darkness You know, a miner, I'm talking about the kind that dig in tunnels, a miner's worst fear must be a tunnel collapse, right? That's got to be just constantly looming in the back of their mind. What if the tunnel collapses and I'm stuck? Because being that far down, if the tunnel collapses, there's little hope. There's little people can do. Many miners have died. I mean, you're probably remembering now, it wasn't that long ago that we heard that crazy mining disaster that took them days and days and weeks to get into. Even if, as a miner, you survived the initial collapse, you know you'd never be able to claw your way out, and now there's a ticking clock. You'll either die of starvation, suffocation, right? The lights start to go out. What can you do? But like it says in that verse, sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, just waiting for death to come. There's no hope. Now, you hope that there are people on the outside, up top, who know what happened and are working to get you there, but you just hope it's not too late. A miner would know that their rescue could only come from the outside. Now, imagine, let's say you're there for a day or two days, picturing this with the miner, right? Imagine what the feeling would be as you heard voices through the rubble. And you knew that hope was coming. Imagine the exhilaration in you that would spark when you saw the first little bit of light break through the rubble. That rescue is almost there. I think that's the exhilaration being felt by Zechariah in this song. That in our sin, church, we're like the miner, sitting in the dark, waiting for death to come. We can't claw our way out. There's no way. Our only hope for rescue comes from the outside. And here's the reality of the nature of sin, too. The tunnel's already collapsed. It's not like it collapsed for some in sin and and not for others. It's already collapsed. We're all already in there. We're stuck. And notice Zechariah, if you look at the language here, he includes himself as one of those sitting in the darkness as well. His only hope is God's past promises. It hangs on God's character. Our hopes hang on the revealed character of God. Look at Exodus 34 again. Let's piece this together. It said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. God's mercy is, thankfully, essential to his character. It's a deep parental movement towards another. Like Pastor Trey said, it's love in action. It is fully realized in God. And compassion is fully exemplified in Jesus. And Christians joy, uh, Christians join in God's mission of showing his compassion to the world. Chuck, do you see that slide up there? It's that last, second to last one, I think. I just want you to be able to see it. Yeah, thank you. Can we just leave that one up for a little while too, Chuck? So let me ask, as you look over this list of God's mercy, some of the things that we've talked about, 
why do you think we need to understand the mercy of God like this? It might be weird to hear me say this, but so what? So God's mercy is this, his compassion is this, and so what? what? What do we do with that? Why does it matter? Well, church, because every Christmas season, the words being used everywhere are hope, joy, comfort, compassion. But without God, they're doomed to never truly find those things. They're going to at best only find a reflection of those things. The, the only way to find compassion, the kind that they're looking for, is to understand the compassion of God. Now, church, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We join him in his work of compassion in the world. And if we don't understand it more fully, if we don't receive it each day, then we're not bringing God's compassion into the world. Our workplaces, our church, our community, we're bringing something else. And at best, it's a reflection. And, hear me on this, it's not going to be anything better than what's already out there. Pastor Frank sent this to the pastors and elders uh, later this, uh, late last week. There was a new Gallup poll from November 5th, uh, and it compares last year over this year, and it was searching for um, how people rated their mental health. Okay? So it showed a decrease in the population comparatively who rated their mental health as excellent. So that went down, which isn't that much of a surprise. We, We've all felt that, except for weekly churchgoers who showed the only positive increase in excellent mental health. I think that's surprising. We, we have something the world needs, church, and they're not going to find it on their own. We are stuck in the mine shaft. There's no hope. If we don't understand and experience this for ourselves, being convinced in our own minds, then we're not bringing God's compassion into the world. We're bringing something else, and it's no better than whatever else is out there. Now, our church is known as a generous church. That's our reputation. I've said that before, and I'm so thankful for that. That's amazing to be part of that. And donations are good, and they have their place, and it's all some people can do. But I don't think that automatically gets us off the hook of being God's compassion bringers into the world. There are relationships and opportunities God's given you or will give you to bring his compassion into. You want to know a dangerous prayer? God, give me a chance to show your compassion in the world today. Because he'll answer it. We don't even have to look very far to find suffering. It's all around us, physical, emotional, spiritual. This is a broken world. It's been a hard year. Look around and pray for a chance to join him in that work and when the opportunity arises, be bold, be faithful, and yes, be compassionate. Let's pray, and then we'll move into a time of response. God, I just was overwhelmed as I'm preparing this and thinking about your compassion and your mercy. God, who am I that you would show me mercy? Who am I? Who are we, God, that you would lavish your compassion on us? Thank you for your character, God. And I'm going to pray that dangerous prayer for us, God. Please give us an opportunity this week to show your compassion. God, we pray that we would first recognize and receive it, and then, God, be faithful to share it with others. Thank you for calling us into that work. Amen.
And we end with an important time of response. We respond in a few ways. We sing and we pray. We'll have pastors and elders and deacons available up here. We just ask that you keep your mask on while you're praying with us. Now, when you come up for prayer, remember, it's not as if we're up here having it all figured out. We, we got it all figured out. You just come to us. We'll give you the best advice. No, not at all. Let us pray with you. Let us entreat the mercy of God with you. And as Christians, now is when we come to receive communion together. If you didn't yet, please go back and grab a cup on the way in. I realize, too, we've had a, a few people say these cups are not the tastiest thing in the world. And I'm just going to over-pastoralize that and say, let the bitterness of the juice remind you of the bitterness of the cross. In communion, we remember his blood and body broken and shed for us in the single greatest act of mercy ever shown. You see, that old definition of mercy was missing something. Mercy isn't just about not getting what we do deserve, but remember, it's active. It's giving what we do deserve over to Jesus on our behalf. That was God's active compassion over you and me. And I think that's not only a fuller definition of mercy, but it's the clearest picture we have of God's compassion over us. And so we sing. Let's sing out like Zechariah in praise to our God, who doesn't just pull us out of darkness, but guides our feet one step at a time in full dependence on him. And like that last little bit there, he guides us in the way of peace. Let's sing together now. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
Again, thank you very much for being here with us and worshiping with us uh, this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. Um, I will say that during Advent, I, I really can't get enough of Mary's song, the Magnificat. So let this be our blessing, our prayer, and our charge as we go out today. I'm going to read it all. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. May God bless you and keep you as you go this week. Uh, go and live all of life, all for Jesus, and we'll see you next week.